0: Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We talked a good bit two weeks ago about who we do not wrestle against. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This morning, we pick back up in verse 12 to look at our actual enemies. I want to start in verse 10. We're going to read through the end of the chapter first. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the the evil one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view beyond the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you may also know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Our struggle is not against but against Before we get there Very good, though, students of the word. I want to back up to verse 11. We talked about the schemes of the devil, but the devil himself is not specifically listed as an enemy in verse 12, but I do not want to neglect that word. The word devil in Greek is diablos. In Hebrew, the Old Testament, it is translated as Satan. That's where we get that word. Satan means accuser or adversary, slanderer, one who comes up against. There's a clear picture here in the Hebrew that this is like a, a prosecuting attorney who's seeking to condemn and accuse people. That's what we have. Satan goes before God and says, oh, that person's a sinner. Throw him into my eternal pit with me. That's, that's, Satan knows where he's going. He's read the Word of God, believe it or not says, oh, I want Sam, I want Eric, I want Kathy, I want Louie. Look at all the things they've done, God. But Jesus, our mediator, stands in between God and he receives all these accusations and says, nope, that's been covered, paid for by my blood, he's been washed. That's what Jesus Christ as mediator does for us. Once we've confessed our sin, we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, Jesus comes and washes us clean, and he takes all those accusations and throws them, says, you know what, none of these matter, Satan, they've been paid for. That's what Satan does, he's an accuser, he's a liar, he's a slanderer. Now we know that he he is mighty, we don't like to think about this, but Satan is powerful. But he doesn't have all authority, he's got a limited authority, but we know that he, he has some authority based on Scripture. This is limited because we can think of a couple examples. For one, Job, which I've referenced before, is that the devil had to go to God to get permission, okay? But he was able to do these things and bring calamities against him, wasn't he? That's power. That's the difference between power and authority. We also know that the, the, the devil, when he was um, tempting Jesus... He has this sort of power to give over his kingdoms of the world, okay? But he doesn't have authority to do that without God's permission. When Jesus went to the cross, he said, this power of darkness is yours, okay? But we also know that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. Now, here's an interesting thought. Why why does this affect us? Well, we need to be on guard from all the schemes of the devil. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. Should we take this figuratively or literally? Yes. Figuratively in the sense that he's able to present truth or rather misrepresent truth. Just as he did to Jesus quoting Scripture in an attempt to deceive him. We must be on the alert against the misrepresentation of truth or, as Mady says, mingled truth. How do we know mingled truth? Well, we have to know the Word of God. Well, how do we know the Word of God? We have to read the Word of God. You know, we often, not you guys because I know you're, you're wonderful, perfect people, but some other people, I've, I've met them, just saying, not, not us, they have this idea that you could come to church Sunday morning and you get fed the Word of God and that's it for the week. But I'm just saying, at the rate we're going, most of you are going to be dead before we cover the whole Scripture. So you might as well start reading it on your own. Right? If we continue on at this pace, you're all going to be 140 by the time I get to Revelation. Okay? So you guys, you guys it's important to read the Word of God. Amen? But also, let's consider in the literal sense. We know, according to Scripture, that both Lot and Abraham hosted angels, angelic beings. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 alludes to this, okay? We know that Satan can is actually, one of his ultimate main goals is to, we read about this in Revelation, to deceive the world by being like Christ. Signs and wonders. That's one of the things. The anti-Christ. One of his late last great deceptions will be to impersonate Jesus and do miracles in the sight of men. You don't have to, but I'm going to very quickly read from Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 says in verse 13 and 14, he, this is Satan the beast, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. That's a sign. If I could say, would you believe God If I could call fire out of heaven, you may not be interested in that, but I guarantee you a whole lot of people on the streets of Blacksburg would be interested in that. You'd probably hear about it in the collegiate times. Maybe you'd even make WDBJ. Maybe in this day and age of TikTok and YouTube. Can you imagine Instagram, how fast the word will spread in that day? We're no longer the day where, you know, we have to send a letter on the Pony Express, you know, unscroll our papyrus, and we tell people about the things that are happening in the next county over. It's instantaneous around the globe. Do you not think that Satan will use that to his advantage? We're also, we're aware of the signs and wonders that I believe um, Satan's power actually worked through the Egyptian magicians. When God was doing his signs in front of Pharaoh to get his people delivered. Revelation sixteen fourteen again, we see another verse. For they are of spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Revelation 19, verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him false prophets who performed the signs in his presence. I'm going to say something here to all the charismatic bunch. If you're seeking signs, you're more likely to be deceived. But if you seek the truth, you're on the right track. We have to guard against seeking signs. Not every sign is from God. Jesus addressed that as well. He called them perverse seeking signs. Now, we're talking about Satan disguising himself. Understand that he is, when it says he is an angel of light, that this is not the true light. Rather, this is deceptive light. John writes about Jesus. He says in John chapter 1, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. True light. Jesus was the true light. But there's also, that means if there's a true, there must also be a false light. That's Satan's MO. True apostles, true prophets, false prophets. True light, false light. True gospel, Galatians chapter one verses seven through nine. False gospel. True light, false light. Who's at work behind all of those false imitations? Well, Satan is. The devil is. The diablos. Lucifer. Satan. And he, we are warned in Scripture that he will go to any means necessary to kill, steal, and destroy even to the extent of transforming himself into the appearance as a messenger from God so that even the elect might be deceived. Between false signs and prophets and demons disguising themselves, we need to be discerning. False light cannot produce actual light. The point here about mentioning all of this is while Satan could present himself to us personally, individually, and regularly, he is an angel. He's a messenger. He's a created being. Therefore, he is not omnipresent. That's the word that means everywhere at all times. He is in one place, just as you and I. He is not outside of space. He is bound by it. So how does he deceive all the people? I say, okay, pastor, wait a second. So if Satan can't be everywhere working all his work through each and every one of us all across the globe at all the time, how on earth do you keep saying that all these people are being influenced by the devil? Well, I want to tell you how. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to get into the gospel found in the third chapter of Genesis. This is known as the proto Evangelum. It is the first gospel verse that is found in the Word of God chronologically and um, also the way that our canon is put together in, in a book order. This is, many refer to this as the first gospel message. It's right in the smack dab. Adam and Eve have sinned. They ate of the fruit. God comes down and says, Why are you naked? They said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Now God is handing out some punishments for them. He turns to the serpent first. Notice this. Verse 15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, he shall, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here's a picture in case you're not familiar with this. Satan, you're going to strike the seed of the woman. We know very clearly in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 that the woman's seed is Christ Jesus, okay? Satan, you're going to strike his heel. It's going to hurt him. He's going to lose his life. But in doing so, your head is going to be crushed, now, who do we think that serpent is? That's the devil. Now, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, makes it very clear to us that that's, that ancient serpent, that dragon of old, who do you think that's talking about? Circling all the way back to Genesis, saying, here's a picture here. There's a picture of this devil walking around deceiving Eve, and we know that that is that same fallen angel. Lucifer. But what we often miss here is there's two ways in which there is enmity. Between the woman and the serpent, but it's really between also his seed, and he's talking to the, the devil, the Lucifer, the serpent. His seed, your seed, and her seed. Woman and serpent, seed and seed. Who are the sons of the devil. Let's go to John. John chapter 8. There's a group of Jews who claim to be the children of Abraham, and we've got a lot to get to, so I don't want to read this whole chapter, but just in context, you can look up if you want at verse 39. They're claiming to be the children of Abraham. But they also want to kill Jesus. I believe it's in verse 40. I want to pick up in verse 43, though. They claim to be sons of Abraham. They want to kill Jesus. Jesus comes to them and says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and want to do the desire." Now, notice here, Jesus is not politically correct. We, you know, we, we, we've got this idea that, you know, Jesus is loving. He would never offend anybody. He's welcoming. Did you hear? He just called them. They think they're the the upper echelon of, of Judaism. We are sons of Abraham. We're following all of his statutes and his laws. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You're sons of the devil. I don't know about you, but if someone important or close to you said you're a son of the devil, I'd probably get your ears perked up. Maybe you'd get a little offended. Jesus didn't care. He was speaking the truth. He said, you are of the father of the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, meaning him. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. How much truth is in Satan? None. None. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar in the father, the inventor. The creator, the beginning and end of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Now these Jews are called sons of Satan. Satan's seed. Are you getting it? I don't think we give this much thought, do we? But the picture here in scripture is very clear. That if you are doing evil deeds and participating with the deeds of lies or Satan, then you're actually a son of the devil. There's other places in Scripture that talk about this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, I believe, talks about this parable of the tares and the wheat. And he calls the tares the sons of the devil. They've come to mix and intermingle, but they're doing no good things. You can also, if you want to turn to 1 John, that's at the back, not Gospel of John, but First John chapter 3, verse 4 through 12 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, that's Jesus, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins, no one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who practices sin is of the devil, a son of the devil, the serpent seed. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because he, his seed, notice that word, abides in him. We're talking about sin and seed, being children of the Father or children of the devil. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God, a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Oh, isn't that nice? We just happen to have a verse that says it. Isn't the Bible cool? Anyone who does not practice righteousness, wait a second. I thought we were just talking about those that sin were of the devil. The Bible actually goes to make it even more clear. If you do not practice righteousness. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. If you do not practice righteousness, you're not of God. That's a thought. It seems to me that the seed of Satan is one who does evil deeds. It's almost like there's a connection between our sin and being used by the devil. Are you getting it? The devil sinned from the beginning. What happens is this progression. Eve was deceived, but she partnered with the devil, and she gave to her helpmate the fruit that he might eat of it. What happens when we sin? Those that are around us are affected by our own bad choices. When we sin, we cause a chasm or separation between God's righteousness, holy life, and ourselves. And because of those actions, that separation of God that happens between us and Him, other people begin to have temptations put in their lives. Satan does not have to be present at the end of your bed for you to sin. All you have to do is be presented with a choice which oftentimes comes through the mistakes and the lifestyle choices of people around you. I believe that the devil does very little on earth directly. Usually he works through human beings that he employs as instruments for his work believe that he also uses his demonic powers, which we're going to get to, to accomplish his will. I see him as sort of the brains behind the operation, sitting up at the gates of Haiti making decisions. They bring him reports. I would just encourage you all, if you, if you like, my dad and I were just discussing this. I've mentioned this book before. But This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti are awesome fictional books about spiritual warfare. They're long reads, like six million names. It's really hard to keep track of everybody and all the angels, because what's happening is there's a picture of the natural realm and the angelic host, and they, Frank Pretty does a really good job fleshing out these characters and naming them all. I tell you, it's worth the read. It's been a long time since I've read it, and I really probably need to read it again, but This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. encourage you just to, to, to read those if you, if you like to read, or if you have time, but we have this picture of, in that you'll see this kind of hierarchy of demonic forces and the way it trickles down and to the individual level. It's it's absolutely on point, I think. But when our sin is left unchecked, we begin to assist the enemy. And as I said, the devil cannot be everywhere at all times. He's not omnipresent. And so he uses other fallen angels to assist with influencing and deceiving humans all the time, everywhere. And this is where our sin comes into play. There's this natural decay that sort of happens. You know, Eve sinned; she she missed the mark, she gave to her husband, he turned and followed and disobeyed God. They were punished for that. But Romans 1 also talks about this sort of natural progression of sin and separation between the Father. If you were to go read it in Romans chapter 1, we see first that they had a knowledge of God. There was knowledge. We can see His invisible attributes through creation, but Watch this. When they don't give him honor and glory, what happens? Their hearts are darkened. And after their hearts are darkened, they become fools in their own thinking. They become wise. And then they go into this willful ignorance. Well, we know what we're doing is wrong, but it feels good. It's pleasurable. This is the progression. You can see it in scriptures. Go study it. And then eventually, God gives them over to a completely depraved mind. Then they have actually gone to the point of partnering with the devil, but not even knowing it. This is the progression that happens through society. You may know friends. You may have family that fall somewhere on that line, but this is what the Apostle Paul fleshed out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that we all know God deep down inside. We have been His rules and law have been inscribed on our hearts. God gives us plenty of opportunity to experience Him even in creation and nature. But if we don't honor and praise Him, if we don't worship Him and give Him glory... Perhaps you know people that say they believe in God, but they're not in church. I would say that's probably where they're at. They don't give them the praise that he's due. Maybe you, you even are here. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, I don't really like worship. I don't really like singing. Watch out. Because if you're not careful, what happens is these, you become foolish and your impure thoughts lead you into sin and then eventually willful ignorance and then depravity. When our sin is left unchecked, we assist the enemy. Now, Back to Ephesians chapter 6, building a case that the devil is absolutely an enemy, but he is not so directly involved in our lives as we think, and this is where verse 12 comes in. Satan schemes, he deceives, whether directly or indirectly. When a person sins, they actually relinquish their authority To the evil one. And then he influences them to propagate further evil to others. But here's the thing Paul tells us very clearly that our struggle or our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. This is, you know, Adam said, you know, it was Eve's fault, right? God said, What have you done, Adam? Well, this woman you gave me. Eve said, what have you, or God said to Eve, What have you done? Well, that serpent. The blame game started, right? Very early on. But at least Eve's was theologically correct. She's like, Well, it's not against flesh. Look what you did. It's, it's this, this influence, this power. But, e, but Adam blaming Eve totally missed it. Paul is saying, You know what? Even if your spouse gives you a fruit to eat of, it ain't her fault. You made the conscious decision. Not only that, there's a spirit at work behind that influencing, and that's exactly what we see in the garden. And that's no different than it is today. This is why it's important for us to know our enemy. It's not the people. We spent a good deal of time on that two weeks ago. All right. Paul says our wrestling is against... Four things. Rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our wrestling is not against the president. It's not against governors. It's not against teachers. It's not against spouses. It's not against children. It's not against your parents. In the deepest sense, let's look a little bit closer who our enemies are. Number one, the devil. Number two, I would add, in scripturally, verse 12, we're back in verse 12, says, Rulers. It's not against flesh and blood but against rulers. Your translation may say principalities or depotisms. This is the word in Greek. And it's actually arche. In the Bible, it is most frequently translated as the word beginning. Our struggle or wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against beginnings. Well, how on earth do we get rulers or principalities from that? The one who existed first, the one that has priority, the preeminent one, the preeminence. That's really a closer word, but we don't really use that word a whole lot, do we? Maybe Shakespeare did. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against preem- pre- no, I can't even say it. preeminences. Jesus, speaking of Satan, in John chapter 14 says, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming. He's talking to his disciples and warning them. The ruler of the world. Who do you think he was talking about? Satan has power. He also has limited authority. The ruler, the arche of the world, the preeminence of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. We've also seen this word already twice in Ephesians. Perhaps it's uh, worthwhile just to look back real quick. If you're there, Ephesians chapter one, verse 21. Jesus has been placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is above all rulers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church, that's us, to the rulers, to the preeminence. We have a job, and we talked about this many months ago in chapter 3. I'm sure you remember it all and you've listened to that sermon weekly because it was so good. We, as a church, have a not only a task but a, a command. We have the opportunity. One of our premier um, things that we do, I can't think of the right word, but just go with it, is to bring the hidden things into view to all of the rulers of the world, the preeminence, the ones that are around us. The gospel, that they will know one day and bow to that name that's above every name. That's one of the greatest purposes. I think that's the word I was looking for, searching for earlier. One of our purposes is that the demonic forces in the heavenly places would actually feel and experience and come to know the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ through our actions in bringing his kingdom here to earth. God could absolutely wipe them all out in any instant he wanted, but if he uses it through the church, through the human that, he, that the devil was actually deceiving and used for all of these many wicked generations, how much greater is that redemption plan? All right, we also have this word powers. Your Bible may say authorities, and that's a better word. The Greek word is exousia, it's power of will, physical and mental power, influence, and privilege. If arche is the authority granting the power, the exousia is the one who executes the power. And this picture is a divine order with an invisible rank. Colossians chapter 2.15 says, When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those are the two words together, arche and exousia, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. One is the one who's behind all of the power and one is a delegated being who is walking in that authority of that delegator. Number three, we see world forces of this darkness. We're still in verse 12 of Ephesians 6. World forces of this darkness, or yours may say rulers of the darkness. The Greek word is kosmokrator. Cosmo, meaning heavens, and krator, its forces. The ESV nailed this translation. I love it. It says the cosmic powers over this present darkness. What do they reign over? This present darkness, which just so happens to be that book I referenced earlier. Frank Pretty. I wonder if he might have gotten that name from here. I never put that together because I've never seen the ESV until studying for this. It's a newer translation. Cosmic powers over this present darkness. What do they reign over? The realm of darkness, the world forces of darkness. I already alluded to this verse earlier when Jesus was arrested by the mob he said to them, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me, but this hour of darkness are yours. Do you remember that one? Same word there. Krator, Cosmo Krator. It's the same word. Powers that oversee and operate the realms in the absence of Christ. When Christ is removed, you have a power of darkness. When Christ walks into a room, the light fills the room. So the powers of darkness are those places that have no Christ dwelling in them. And they the powers that operate and do the wickedness of the enemy, the evil one, when Christ is not there. But thanks be to God that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. Out of the darkness into His marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. Last in this list we see spiritual forces or hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Greek says this, pneumatikos, ho, poneria. Pneumatikos. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Does any of that sound familiar? Spirit. Close. Pneumatikos is the word that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 referring to spiritual gifts. Tikos being the gift part. It's a compound word. Pneuma, Holy Spirit. Pneuma, Spirit. Tikos, gifts. Spiritual gifts. And really what the word, we don't have a very good word in, in Greek for this, but the word is actually spirituals. Paul is writing to the church. He says, about spirituals, we add the word gifts, I don't want you to be unaware. Now, I don't want to miss up a good opportunity for a charismatic message, so I'm going to tell you something here. The same word that is describing powers in the heavenly places is the word that Paul uses to describe the gifts that we have given to us. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spirituals. How many of you have ever given thought to the fact that Satan has spiritual gifts at his disposal. Now, the word is spirituals, but in the same way that we have gifts, if you want to call it that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans, also in Ephesians, we have gifts, don't we? The same word is also used of demonic forces. Why are spiritual gifts so important to the church? If we are ever going to defeat the spiritual enemy, we're going to need spiritual weapons. Now, we're going to get there with the armor of God in a few months, I promise. (laughs) But there's a little taste of this picture. I wish I spoke Greek better, but it it is rich when we, we get these little words and you can just see better what Paul is trying to articulate here. There are wicked spirituals. He has wicked gifts, depravity, iniquity, malice, evil purposes. And all those demons that are involved with those wicked things and wicked acts and vile immoralities, may we not miss this. This is the spiritual battle that we're fighting daily. You're in it, whether you think you are or not. We've already established that. Now, I don't want to make too much of the subtleties uh, between these various categories of demonic beings rather... I hope what's clear from this main point of this verse is struggle is not against, but is against, is against, is against. Not against, is against, is against. Pastor John MacArthur, I was reading his commentary, and he suggests that this repeated word against, it's used three times here, is that it's implying a category of demonic activity. In other words, The way that it's written is a description of structure and hierarchy. He believes that these are various ranks of Satan's forces. I don't know. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, I don't want us to be dogmatic on it, but I thought it was a good point. He does not want, or he didn't want to explain, or saying Paul's purpose is not to necessarily explain the details of the hierarchy, but rather that we would have an idea of some of its sophistication and power, that we would not be unaware of the schemes of the devil. Okay. Commentator, pastor, and author John Phillips said this, We must see beyond people. Satan may use people to persecute us, lie to us, cheat us, hurt us, or even kill us. Our real enemy lurks in the shadows of the unseen world, moving people as pawns on the chessboard of time. As long as we see people as enemies and we wrestle against them, We will spend our strength in vain. Certainly, we see wicked people. We hear the evil things they say and feel the hurts they inflict on us. People are involved, but they are not the real problem. This is not an ordinary battle. We are in a greater arena than the one we can see. Church, we must know our real enemy. Satan attacks us when we least expect it. Now, I'm no demonic strategist, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't come and introduce himself and say, Hi, I'm Lucifer. I'd like to steal, kill, and destroy. Would you hang out with me a little bit? If he did that, we would say, Get lost. We'd recognize it. It's the schemes we must be aware of. It's not against the people in your life. But understand, there are real spiritual forces out there and their entire agenda... They're not going to be redeemed. Maybe we should mention that. Can Satan be saved? Absolutely not. That's what hell was created for. The eternal lake of fire was actually made for Lucifer. He cannot be redeemed. And so what do they have left to do? It's like an an inmate on, on death row. What's it matter what I do? I can do whatever I want. I can't be redeemed. Well, by the grace of God, they can in the spiritual realm, but on earth, they cannot. And that's the destiny, and they know it. And so all they do, their whole agenda and purpose is to come up, and they try and scheme and deceive and trick you into thinking that God's love isn't good. They say, oh, you don't need to be so intolerant of these people. And they, so, they sort of sprinkle this watered-down truth and say, oh, just, just give up on this morality. You don't need to do that. That's so archaic. And they come and try and discourage you and they insinuate that God is really angry at you and that he doesn't love you. Maybe we're having trouble holding our tongue and say, go ahead, say what you think. It's not these great tragedies that often the devil's behind that we say, Oh, that's the devil. Now he does do that. He overplays his hand. And I hope we take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to be aware of the subtleties and the ways that he comes in and encourages us to take the low road gradually or he nurses a grudge that becomes a root of bitterness that leads to an outbreak of anger and hate in our life. Church, I sincerely hope that we know who our real enemy is because if we're going to fight this battle and we're going to have any success, we must understand that it's not against the people that are in our lives, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and forces in dark places. Now before I close, I want to leave us with some good news very quickly because I'm not sure how many weeks it will be before we pick back up in the armor of God. The thing is, while the devil is real and while his attacks are imminent, he is already a defeated foe. I want you just to gather these four encouragements from God's word Number one, Romans 8.38 tells us, The principalities cannot keep us from God's love. Therefore, there is a limit to the power of the evil one. There is a limit to his power. Ephesians 1.20-21 20 tells us that Jesus is enthroned in heaven far above all principalities and powers. Therefore, I gather that there is a limit to their authority. There is a limit to their authority. Colossians 1.16 says, that Jesus created principalities and powers. And if he created them, guess what? They can also be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15:24 tells us that principalities and powers have an end. So I would encourage you lastly with this church that our battle is only temporary. One day we will stand before the Lord, of lords and the King of Kings. Perhaps we even be invited to that great battle We get to see the enemy defeated once and for all.